dilly-dallying around because uh, the Vice President of the United States will be speaking after us, and so there are all kinds of security issues and so on and so forth. So, uh, so we'll try to get underway very quickly so that we can um, have a nice discussion about intellectual property in the developing world. Uh, the, uh, I, I, my name is Bruce Lehman. Uh, I'm uh, at Aiken Gumstrauss Hauernfeld. I'm also the president uh, or the chairman of the International Intellectual Property Institute, which is an organization that works with developing countries to try to help them develop intellectual property systems for their own economic growth and development. Uh, and I've been involved in this uh, business in one way or another in about, for about 30 years. And uh, probably my biggest claim to fame is that uh, during the 90s, I was uh, Assistant Secretary of Commerce and Commissioner of Patents and Trademarks. And that was during the time, really, where uh, my office oversaw the intellectual property diplomacy that really led to the treaties that are now in existence that, for the most part, require all countries of the world, including developing countries, to have patent, trademark, and copyright systems that virtually are, are uh, what we have known for many years here in the United States and other uh, developing countries. And this continues to be a very controversial topic in trade negotiations and in other contexts. Um, uh, we have a, a distinguished pa a panel of speakers who know all about this subject, and uh, our uh, first uh, uh, speaker is, uh, is our Deputy Secretary of Commerce, uh, Alex Azar, who has an extremely distinguished uh, resume in addition to holding that high post that he currently holds. He, uh, uh, among other things, at least for my purposes, what stands out, never having had such an honor, is he was law clerk uh, on the Supreme Court to Justice Scalia and a, uh, and a, a distinguished uh, practitioner uh, here in Washington. Uh, I, I'll just introduce the other people briefly, and then we'll uh, start with, uh, with uh, uh, Secretary Azar. Uh, we also have uh, uh, Jerry Reichman, who I've known for a long period of time, who is a professor of law at Duke University, before that at Vanderbilt, and uh, is uh, 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 author of uh, numerous books and articles relevant to the subject, uh, and um, a very creative thinker in the area. Uh, and we have uh, 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 Bob Sherwood, who I've also known for many years. Bob Sherwood is really... Uh, I suppose one of the longest standing intellectual property diplomats uh, who's been working in this field. He's uh, a graduate of Harvard Law School. He worked in the global pharmaceutical industry for many years, but my dealings with him really have been for many, many years. He's been working with developing countries, uh, oftentimes uh, in a very lonely manner without a lot of help from a lot of other people to get them to recognize the value of intellectual property rights, particularly patent systems. Um, he, I believe, speaks fluent Portuguese and has spent a lot of time uh, in Brazil, uh, particularly working with that country, which continues to need that kind of help, I must say. Uh, and then finally, um, we have um, uh, Dean uh, 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 Dinwiddie, who is uh, uh, Graham Dinwiddie, who is uh, the uh, uh, Professor of Law's Associate Dean and Director of the Intellectual Property Law Program at Chicago Kent College of Law. Uh, and uh, he holds uh, uh, also uh, an appointment as chair of the Intellectual Property Law Program at Queen Mary College in London, and both of those schools have very strong uh, intellectual property programs. He has a distinguished academic career as well. So, I, so that we can get on and get, our, get through our program and get to the vice president, I'll turn it over to uh, Secretary Azar. Well, Bruce, thank you. Bruce, thank you very much. Uh, we face a world in which medicines are being made, in which advances in medicine are being made, advances that can improve human health, cure or mitigate disease or suffering, and even prevent disease. We have new understandings of the molecular causes of disease, and we are really on the verge of a new era in personalized medicine, which would involve targeted therapies that are appropriate for, designed for, and safe for each individual receiving them. But with new technology and innovation comes new cost, and the costs are becoming harder to bear as populations age. P 
people want the best medical care that money can buy, but they want someone else to pay for it. I believe the issue that we're discussing today was best framed by Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni when he quoted an African tribal proverb, you can't be so hungry as to eat the seeds. Contrast that with the observation of his countryman, one of the kings of Uganda. Quote, in my country, sometimes the farmers are very, very poor, and when they become hungry, the seed that is there for the land, they eat it to stay alive. These two perspectives, I think, illuminate the role of intellectual property in drug development. How can we both eat today and eat tomorrow? How do we achieve the delicate balance between immediate consumption and, un and sustainable scientific progress? We have to be careful that our desire to drive down prices today does not sacrifice investment for tomorrow. Well, for the past several years, I have been meeting with health, trade, and finance ministers and other senior officials from most of the wealthy nations around the world to discuss this challenge, to try to build a consensus on the need for all of us to ensure that our reimbursement regimes and pricing systems foster long-term innovation for the health of our people and for all the people of the world, and to share ideas on how we can accomplish these goals given our different health care systems. Because right now, many of their governments have taken a regrettable approach when it comes to intellectual property rights. Many countries have laws that may technically support intellectual property, but their monopsonistic means of implementing their health financing regime effectively undercuts any commitment they may claim to respecting intellectual property in many circumstances. The case for supporting intellectual property is compelling. Let me just give you a few examples of innovation that has relied on the support of IP protections. Over the last 40 years, early infancy diseases have declined by 80% worldwide. New treatments have reduced ischemic heart disease by 68% and hypertensive heart disease by 67%. Today, relatively inexpensive ulcer pills have replaced expensive major surgery and new medicines have led to shorter hospital stays, fewer complications, and better quality of life for the chronically ill. Over the past 40 years, the use of medicines has helped halve the number of hospital admissions for 12 major diseases, including mental illness, infectious disease, and ulcers. And antiretrovirals and cocktail therapies have largely shifted HIV and AIDS from an assumed death sentence into a chronic condition. Now, of course, the development of new drugs and new technologies is an expensive, complicated, and time-consuming and very risky process. Fewer than one in a thousand new molecules created by researchers survive clinical trials and make it to the market. Today, by some estimates, it costs between 800 million U.S. dollars and 1.3 billion dollars of private investment on average, and between eight and 12 years to develop a new drug, to demonstrate its safety and efficacy, and to comply with regulations just to bring it on the market here in the United States. The cost of developing new treatments has more than doubled in the last 10 years, while success rates in developing new products remain as low as ever. And a great portion of these costs to develop a new drug are the amortized costs of all of the thousands of product failures that are needed for the one drug that actually makes it to market. In fact, only 20 to 30 percent of drugs in the final stages of testing actually end up receiving market approval. Without a strong and vibrant intellectual property system, businesses would not have the confidence to invest the billions of dollars in research and development of new and essential medicines would not prosper. These high research and development costs naturally can lead to higher prices for consumers, and the tension between meeting these costs while still investing in innovation is one of the most intractable political questions of our day. Unfortunately, far too often in trying to strike this balance, governments lean too much towards short-term savings and succumb to the temptation to control expenditures through direct price controls, cuts in reimbursement rates, delayed market access, and of course disregarding intellectual property rights. Now our question today is, does IP harm or help developing countries? I believe the answer is emphatically that it does help developing countries. If IP regimes were abolished today, drug development as we know it would cease, and all of us both in developed and developing countries would be left only with the drugs that we have currently on the market. Clearly nobody would want this, especially as there are still many existing and emerging diseases and conditions that we would like treatments and cures for. Many in the developing world do not have sufficient access to the fruits of innovation. However, this is not a problem caused by intellectual property rights. Without those rights and protections, there would be far fewer medicines to distribute in the first place. Rather, the problem is simply a matter of pricing. The most fundamental point 
is that developed countries must respect IP. As I've said, drug, and, drug research and development is very expensive. Because drug development is funded by consumers in developed countries, it is problematic when some developed countries try to shirk their share of the costs. But what about people in developing countries who can't afford the high price of supporting innovation? It's reasonable for market prices to vary in different conditions, and the United States has supported initiatives to create differential pricing structures with the Doha Declaration on the Agreement on Trade-Related Aspects of Intellectual Property Rights, known as TRIPS. The TRIPS Agreement, which was originally negotiated in 1994, sets down international minimum standards for forms of intellectual property regulation. The Doha Declaration, which we negotiated in 2001, is an important political statement that clarifies certain flexibilities that already existed in the TRIPS Agreement. The Doha Declaration itself recognizes the importance of intellectual property rights for the development of new medicines. Now, a shortage of qualified nurses and physicians, underdeveloped health care systems, tariffs, and poor distribution and transport are primarily responsible for the treatment access problems in the developing world. The Doha Declaration affirms that the TRIPS Accord does not and should not prevent members from taking measures to protect public health. It refers to several aspects of TRIPS, including the right to grant compulsory licenses and the freedom to determine the grounds upon which licenses are granted, the right to determine what constitutes a national emergency and the circumstances of extreme urgency under which compulsory licenses in a developing country can be used, and the freedom to establish the the regime of exhaustion of intellectual property rights. It also provides a procedure by which WTO members can issue a compulsory license for the purpose of exporting pharmaceuticals to countries that otherwise meet the requirements for a compulsory license under TRIPS but have insufficient manufacturing capacities to make effective use of the compulsory licensing provisions under TRIPS. But the key to all of this is that countries benefiting from the Doha Declaration cannot then permit or support the export of these humanitarian drugs to countries that could otherwise afford to pay for them, countries that should be shouldering more of a burden in stimulating innovation. I think it is very important also to remember that many pharmaceutical companies don't even register their patents in, the develop- in many countries in the developing world, recognizing, uh, recognize the importance of access to their products there. It also is important to remember that the marginal cost of production of many pharmaceuticals is very low. So differential pricing regimes, if they can be enforced, can be highly effective in ensuring an effective return on innovation and access to these products in the developing world with fewer resources. And another solution, of course, would be developed world countries providing aid and charitable funding, such as we do through PEPFAR and the Global AIDS Fund, in order to purchase drugs consistent with the intellectual property regimes. In sum, I don't think the question is a binary choice between how do we eat today and eat tomorrow. I think there is a way to thread the needle between the two polar ends of intellectual property and access. And a vigorous and profitable drug industry is not a problem to be solved but a goal to be encouraged for the health of all of the world. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Secretary Azar. Now we'll hear from uh, Professor Reichman. Uh, Thank you. Thank you very much uh, for the opportunity to uh, be here today. And thank you for your remarks. I'm not going to speak today about uh, the medical uh, side of it, uh, but uh, I I do want you to know that I I do agree that there's a lot of possibilities of flexibilities there that we're working on to implement, and I think there is a possibility. Um, The topic is, will intellectual property law help or hurt developing countries in 10 minutes or less? So you, you, you see the challenge. It's a very big topic. One has to ask uh, which IP laws are we talking about, whose version of them is on the table, uh, which countries are the focus of inquiry, what do we mean by help or hurt, uh, how do we measure the social benefits or costs to whom, and over what time frame. And I might say we might also nudge the organizers to ask whether ever increasing intellectual property rights will help or hurt the developed countries uh, in the long run, because... uh, Plenty of reputable economists and legal scholars have some serious doubts about how far we can push this envelope. Uh, I think there's abundant evidence that uh, IP as an institution uh, can help every country, but it's also true that intellectual property laws are public goods, and like all public goods, uh, they must be wisely managed. The same copyright laws 
that can promote the music industry in Africa, a project which I have been associated with, uh, they can also make access to textbooks and scientific knowledge unaffordable for most uh, students in Africa unless they're managed properly. Um, I think when the United States was a, a developing country, uh, we didn't protect foreign authors and we didn't, protect, we didn't participate in international copyright conventions. Uh, uh, things are much more difficult now. If we look at industrial property, we can surely say that uh, trade secret laws, unfair competition laws, trademark laws, they, they benefit every country because you can't innovate without them. Even with regard to patents, uh, Keith Maskus has shown that patent laws can help developing countries just by enabling them to import up-to-date high-tech products that would not otherwise be available, uh, not to mention uh, licensing and uh, possibilities of foreign direct investment. Uh, at the same time, however, uh, intellectual property rights can hurt if the foreign sellers impose terms that undermine the ability of entrepreneurs in this country to enter and compete in the global marketplace. Developing countries also need room to reverse engineer unpatentable know-how, to add value by adapting foreign goods to local conditions, and in doing so, uh, they have to blaze new trails because historically, no poor countries had to formulate, no countries that have developed today ever had to formulate their development strategies in the presence of the high international standards uh, we have today doesn't necessarily mean they're bad, but it means they're very challenging. Now, from a broader perspective, uh, the economist Keith Maskus and I have recently published our view that what the TRIPS agreement has actually given birth to is an incipient transnational system of innovation. And that could produce very powerful incentives to innovate of benefit to all mankind. Someone working in a garage in Bangladesh can reach the whole market of the world. The question is, what norms are best for that system as a whole? There is a, a serious governance problem at the international level. There is a tendency to promote international IP standards that lock in rents from existing innovation while making future innovation more difficult. Uh, there are uh, pressures on the ability of uh, states uh, to provide essential public goods, public health, education, food security, environmental safety, um, uh, because many of the inputs are covered by intellectual property rights. And also, there are even problems in fostering healthy uh, free enterprise economies, which I'm sure everyone here is in favor of, against the imposition, the regulatory uh, obligations of these intellectual property standards. In estimating the social costs and benefits of this emerging transnational system of innovation, we have to differentiate among many groups of countries at different levels of development. The poorest of the poor, the, the 32 poorest countries known as the least, developing least developed countries, they, they don't have to shoulder these problems because they're exempt from these obligations until 2013. At the other extreme, the high-income countries, India, China, and Brazil, they're struggling to maximize the benefits and minimize the costs of these uh, uh, intellectual property uh, rights with growing success. They have cultural industries. They have high-tech industries that are profiting. They have problems in their public health sector. They have problems in other sectors that are trying to catch up, uh, and they have a mix. Nevertheless, uh, Brazil, China, and India have all begun to obtain large numbers of foreign patents abroad, and uh, uh, they seem to be working it out. But then we have all the other developing countries at much lower levels of income, the middle and low-income countries, and uh, they have uh, more serious problems. The, the different national and regional capabilities and endowments of the WTO members limit their absorptive capacities and reduce the potential benefits of open markets for knowledge goods. We have a technology divide, and that divide is widened by the high rents that must now be paid to technology exporters and by the absence of any provisions in these uh, international agreements that would confer differential and more favorable treatment on developing countries. This is the first time in history that we have had a trade agreement without such differential and more favorable uh, members. Uh, all of these countries must accordingly compete in markets for knowledge goods on roughly the same normative terms and conditions that govern advanced industrialized countries. And all of them have to struggle and cope with the enormous challenges and burdens, including the financial burdens, that uh, a universal set of uh, high, relatively high IP norms thrust upon them. 
even those countries that are not engaged in the uh, knowledge good producing tournament, uh, they still have the costs and the problems of organizing and maintaining the defense of foreign intellectual property owners uh, uh, with uh, uh, serious um, uh, implications for their, uh, their uh, um, exchequer. Uh, in other words, uh, even developing countries that opt out of the innovation system must engage with the social costs of intellectual property norms both as defensive measures and because they have to uh, continue to provide other public goods uh, and they have to master all of these flexibilities uh, with varying degrees of success. They're having a lot of problems. We're trying to help them, but they're having a lot of problems, and I think if they did a better job, they would be able to uh, uh, do more of what you want. Um, uh, of course, it would help if the developed countries would uh, ease off on the pressures on these countries for still more and higher levels of intellectual property protection, but that's another, another problem. When developing countries opt into the production of knowledge goods for local consumption or export purposes, they have really big problems. Uh, they have to uh, balance incentives for their own industries uh, without discriminating against foreigners because we have a national treatment uh, requirement. And then they are also under pressures, as you've just heard, uh, for political reasons, among others, uh, to uh, watch out for their public health and their public education problems. Uh, here, in short, even the economically dynamic developing countries must resolve tensions between calibrating TRIPS-compliant domestic norms to stimulate innovation and adjusting the same set of norms to provide access to knowledge and medicines on affordable terms and conditions. Uh, this is a really uh, hard uh, task. More, more generally, uh, the TRIPS agreement has obliged developing countries to engage in this d uh, delicate balancing act uh, between uh, private and, and public goods. And the international system does not offer any guidance to these countries in this regard. We have no trusted governance mechanism for balancing public and private interests in this emerging transnational system of innovation. Now think about that for a moment. We are always talking about the balance between public and private interests here. We're thrashing it out in committees. We're thrashing it out in hearings, in legislation. And I think we do, on the whole, a pretty good job of it. Uh, they don't have a basis for doing this at the national, international system at all and very primitive means in their own countries. We, we lack theoretical premises and empirical evidence to determine which IP standards would best promote the diversity, diverse goals of this system over time. We have generated few ideas and little discussion about how to maintain the supply of other global public goods under a supranational IP regime, and we have not yet begun to acknowledge the problems, the distributional problems that uh, are involved. Uh, Mascus and I have uh, taken the view that uh, we really don't need any more rounds of standard setting, IPR standard setting uh, for the moment. We've called for a moratorium. We think that the developing countries need a breathing space in which to accommodate the social costs of the TRIPS agreement and posterior TRIPS plus and also TRIPS minus uh, measures. They must particularly master the nuances of existing international standards of protection, including these built-in and subsequently added flexibilities, with a view to adapting uh, uh, this legal infrastructure to their own assets, capabilities, and needs. So uh, we, we think it's time for a, 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 a timeout. Uh, we also uh, encourage, and, and I think uh, Bruce is doing very good work on this, we really encourage, uh, we do need more reliable information about IPR, how IPRs are helping the developing countries, especially in certain fields and at certain levels of per capita G, uh, GDP. Uh, we need uh, to encourage them to embrace a pro-competitive ethos uh, they need to experiment with new intellectual property models, including those based on open source solutions and on the strategic use of liability rules, which is beginning to get quite a bit of play, because liability rules can cure market failures without impeding follow-on innovation, uh, without creating barriers to entry, and uh, without uh, necessarily uh, creating blocking effects. Uh, developing countries need to formulate suitable competition law rules and policies. Uh, they also need to be testing different approaches to stimulating and disseminating innovation in their own national and regional systems of inno innovation, which could give us valid experiments that could lead to new bottom-up proposals. For example, 
um, one of the things that we ought to be thinking about in line with your uh, remarks is uh, ways to uh, coordinate global contributions to the cost of clinical trials because it is a global public good and there shouldn't be any free riding in, 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 in that area. We must particularly ensure that developing countries are connected to the worldwide flow of scientific and technical information in what uh, UNESCO has called the drive for knowledge societies. We will need better research exemptions to all intellectual property regimes. Uh, we want to ensure that government-funded and government-generated scientific research results are widely disseminated at affordable costs. I think we want to encourage the developing countries to start working on variants of our Bayh-Dole, maybe improvements on our Bayh-Dole Act, but certainly finding public-private public partnerships between their research universities and the private sector. And looking beyond innovation, we must find ways to ensure uh, that progress in, in stimulating the production of knowledge goods uh, leads to the support of other public goods, such as public health, agriculture, the environment, education, and scientific research. In other words, we should be working to reverse the trend that makes the globalization of private knowledge goods increasingly at odds with the provision of global public goods, including knowledge as a public good. And we should instead be taking steps to ensure that this emerging transnational system of innovation adequately fosters and supports the supply of both in an environment that remains responsive to basic human needs and fundamental human rights. Thank you. Thanks um, very much, Jerry. Next, we'll hear from uh, uh, Mr. Sherwood. I'd like to start a talk like this by reporting my observation in probably 25 or so developing countries around the world uh, that in every country there are uh, inventive, creative minds. And whether this natural resource is utilized to grow those economies or becomes a wasted asset uh, is largely dependent on the local intellectual property system my, uh, one of my favorite stories uh, comes from Nicaragua, uh, hardly an advanced developing country. And I was there for the World Bank, and after I'd completed an interview with one of the local uh, intellectual property attorneys, he said, wait a minute, and reached in his desk drawer, and he pulled out this strange-looking plastic thing uh, that he called a melon saver. This is an oversized golf tee sort of thing, but with supplemental legs. And he explained that the melons in the tropics grow on the ground. As they reach maturity, the microbes emerge from the soil and tend to induce rot and other pathogens in the melons. This melon saver, a little bit labor-intensive, but nonetheless is used to prop up the melon off the ground as it reaches that precarious stage. When I got back to my hotel that evening, uh, I told the fellow who was with me on the World Bank mission about it. He had been involved in agriculture around the world for a long career, and he said, my goodness, I wish I'd thought of that. That is a major jump forward for agriculture in a lot of developing countries. The key in that story is that the farmer who came up with the invention understood patents just enough to apply for one. The patent law in Nicaragua is pretty primitive, but good enough to handle that one. But he also got a patent in the United States. And on the strength of those two patents, he was able to go forward uh, into production. I haven't been back to Nicaragua. I don't know the uh, sequel to that story in terms of how it's changed things. But I use the example to illustrate the fact that there are bright minds uh, in every country. Uh, in contrast, in Brazil, Petrobras, the national oil company, in the early 90s uh, was struggling with the lack of oil reserves within Brazil. And they commissioned some professors at the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro to work on deep ocean platform drilling technology. Uh, they were conscious of some patents held by other oil companies. Uh, they went to work and came up with some very excellent platform technology. 
As quickly as they could, they published their findings in academic journals, which, of course, voided the opportunity to seek patents. The result of that failure was that the Brazilian taxpayers who had paid for the research made a gift of this technology to uh, Exxon, uh, British Petroleum, and the other major oil companies of the world, uh, for which I'm sure they were quite grateful. In Brazil, and I use Brazilian examples because I've spent a great deal of time there in the last 35 years, inventions, and they have been important ones in the pharmaceutical area, have been made by university researchers in federal universities. But what they have done, knowing that the intellectual property system there is very weak, has been to fly to Brussels or London, seek patents there, and then negotiate deals with, in one case, uh, the precursor to Glaxo, uh, which was Burroughs Welcome. And those have produced some fairly significant pharmaceuticals. Nothing happened in Brazil, uh, however. Um, I also mentioned an interesting example of a German fellow who had come to Brazil in the 30s. Uh, he made lenses for binoculars, telescopes, and the like. And he alone knew the secret of polishing the lenses at the finishing stage. He was afraid to teach anybody else because he f was afraid that the uh, trade secret involved would slip out of his company and uh, be attained by uh, competitors. That worked fine for a number of years until the old fellow died. And at that point, the company dissolved since he was the only one to embody the technology. In Ecuador, I happened to stumble upon a, young, uh, a group of young fellows who were working with uh, the export of cut flowers. And they had decided that baby's breath uh, had the possibility of genetic improvement. And they worked so that the number of petals on baby's breath was increased threefold, uh, something that the florists very much sought. I happened to meet with these fellows the morning after they learned that the first crop of these genetically improved flowers, uh, which were way up in the Andes in a hidden valley, uh, the fence had been breached and about half of the new plants had been stolen. And they knew because of the lack of intellectual property protection in Ecuador at the time uh, that all of their work uh, in improving the baby's breath uh, had been lost to competitors. In Pakistan, very interesting, and this shows the uh, lengths to which crude means to protect intellectual property are sometimes used. I asked to talk with the Chamber of Commerce in Islamabad, and this rather rough-looking group of men assembled, and uh, I began my little talk, and the president interrupted me. He said, I know all about intellectual property. My family have been making uh, rugs for a long time, and our particular rugs are distinguished by a vivid blue dye. He said, only I and my oldest son know where we get the roots up in the mountains and how we process these to produce the vivid blue dye. He then went on in a strong voice to say, and everyone in this area knows that if they steal this technology, we will have them killed. <laughs> he had a very good understanding of trade secret protection. You use all necessary means uh, under the circumstances to, uh, to make effective protection. In Brazil, and I'm, I'm constantly struck by this example, uh, the Osvaldo Cruz Foundation, a very prestigious and distinguished uh, research institute uh, for over 100 years, produced a yellow fever vaccine. And they sought and obtained patents in a number of countries where yellow fever is a problem. Uh, this vaccine was quite a breakthrough to the world's medical community. Um, and they are manufacturing in Brazil and exporting the finished product elsewhere. Uh, in contrast, Brazil requires that uh, 
intellectual property be protected within Brazil with manufacture locally. Um, what's good for the goose is not good for the gander. Now, to address a little bit the question that the uh, Federalist Society has posed for us this afternoon, I want to really make stress the fact that an intellectual property system is highly discretionary. A tariff system is easy in the sense that as of some fixed date, the tariff is to be reduced from, say, 15 to 10 percent. If you say uh, as of January 1st, the intellectual property system is to work, well, if those who are responsible for administering the intellectual property system in that country don't, A, understand what it is, and B, believe in it, it isn't going to work, uh, precisely because it is so highly uh, discretionary. And this means that the Patent Trademark Office needs to work and work well. The judicial system needs to understand what's involved. And in most of these countries, uh, they don't. And so while our discussion here in this country is uh, very sophisticated and intricate, the conditions in most of the developing countries are still very crude, and the understanding of the many ways in which uh, robust intellectual property protection, and I want to stress that this needs to be well above the level of the TRIPS, uh, stands to release a great deal of energy in those countries. Uh, I wish I had a little more time to elaborate all that, but... Um, a friend of mine, a Brazilian, Carlos Primo Braga at the World Bank, was fond of saying that uh, whether intellectual property is a good idea or a bad idea is a lot like sex. You can talk about it, but until you've tried it, you really don't know what's going on. Uh, I add to that that intellectual property systems without judicial system backing turn sex into fantasy. And I think that really is where the focus needs to be in a lot of developing countries in order to turn the promise of robust intellectual property into something that has positive, strong positive effects for growing those economies. Thank you. Dean Dinwiddie, if you can finish up in your allotted time, then maybe we'll have a few minutes for discussion. Sure. Thank you, Bruce. Uh, the, the, the question that uh, the panel is presented with is, uh, does IP harm or, or help uh, developing countries? And I think the answer is yes, it definitely can help uh, developing countries. But I think, as uh, is evidenced by the previous three speakers, the question is more about what are the conditions that need to exist in order for it to help developing countries. And I think that actually involves two separate sets, uh, the related sets of questions. First of all, uh, it involves considering what conditions have to exist in any particular developing country, and obviously there's a, a group of different countries within that category. I think it also, however, involves some consideration of what form the international intellectual property system must take to facilitate a positive answer to that first question, uh, because the international system is one of the main drivers uh, of domestic protection. Uh, there is often very little domestic pressure, uh, very little domestic impulse to, to create uh, forms of protection. So I think we have to think about both those aspects of the, of the equation. Um, as an additional matter, I think I have to agree with, with uh, the previous three speakers in, in saying that surely uh, stronger intellectual property protection or effective intellectual property protection at certain levels is certainly going to enable and facilitate the supply of goods, the import of goods into developing countries and indeed uh, encourage the uh, foreign investment in those countries. And that's especially true. Uh, if parallel import rules are enforced, and especially true if there is uh, effective enforcement, which I think explains in many ways the uh, uh, focus on enforcement that one sees in a lot of discussions in the last few months at, at, TRIPS, at TRIPS Council. Um, but simply uh, having uh, some level of intellectual property protection will not of itself stimulate new local creativity or innovation all that much. It will clearly protect that which already exists, and, and as Bob has indicated with his examples, clearly there are plenty of examples uh, where uh, developing country inventors or creators uh, have plenty of innovative ideas uh, that can benefit from intellectual property protection. Um, but the short-term benefit is going to be greater uh, just simply from having IP rights uh, for current intellectual property owners who obtain a new stable market from which to obtain uh, returns. 
Instead, the, the full benefits of intellectual property rights for developing countries are really only going to be realized when the local industries uh, also become competitive enough to take advantage of the rights that the system will accord them. Now, getting to that situation actually has substantial benefits for the developed world, uh, which uh, to, to sort of expand the scope of the panel in the way Jerry sort of suggested, in that I think that allows for local buy-in uh, appreciation of the ability to maximize and generate wealth in ways that is very important, particularly in those industries where, to some extent, uh, extracting the value of the intellectual property rights depends uh, on some level of voluntary compliance, uh, uh, a problem that we have even in the United States, for example, with respect to downloading of music. If you don't get the buy-in on the cultural level, it becomes very hard sometimes through legal rights simply to ensure enforcement. Well, to make that happen, to get the buy-in, what do we need? Uh, well, I think to some extent uh, the TRIPS agreement has some of this already in it, in that it recognizes the importance not only of strong intellectual property rights, but also uh, of technology transfer uh, to the developing countries. Um, because we can take the, the uh, uh, contemporary trade philosophy of comparative advantage just a little bit too far. I think it's easy to understand uh, in a non-intellectual property context the idea that, for example, Scotland has substantial reserves of oil, or at least it used to have, uh, and that some of the Caribbean countries have substantial ability to produce bananas and that it makes sense that we each focus on the others and that might make much sense to produce bananas in Scotland uh, and actually trade with each other. But that argument of comparative advantage, I think, doesn't play as well with the same moral force in intellectual property, which is to say I think it's harder to argue uh, well, why don't you keep providing cheap labor and we'll keep taking all the, uh, the cream of the crop uh, through the, the provision and uh, extraction uh, of rents from, the, uh, from technology. Um, so technology transfer is very important. But also uh, important is the capacity and the infrastructure within the countries to which the technology is transferred to absorb that transferred technology. And here carries countries vary very widely. Uh, in their capacity to absorb uh, that technology. Uh, the factors that affect their ability to uh, absorb that uh, technology include education, they include basic infrastructure, they include skill sets, they include healthcare. Um, and these are all issues, of course, in which intellectual property uh, requires the help of other aspects of, of policymaking. So to make intellectual property rights work in the developing country, we need to get the local industries to buy in. We need, therefore, to have uh, uh, them competent enough to take advantage of the uh, full intellectual property rights, and that involves more than just intellectual property, which makes it easier to achieve some of these objectives in the kind of package deals that Bruce talked about, such as TRIPS uh, in 1994. Um, Moreover, it may be the case that in the initial stages there's also some latitude needed for developing countries uh, to develop the industrial base from which they can then uh, uh, obtain and benefit from rights. The United States did this in the publishing industry with respect to its exploitation uh, of pirated works from Britain uh, when uh, uh, its publishing industry was in its infancy. Uh, I think the success of India eventually, which I think will happen in the pharmaceutical area uh, under the uh, new PAD regime that it has, is to some extent dependent upon the fact that it had a generic industry that developed uh, through a more liberal or non-existent or closer to non-existent patent rights, and it had a strong scientific uh, community. So there's some latitude in the early stages of the development of the industrial base uh, that we need to take account into account when we are working out what the appropriate international rules uh, should be. And this last observation points us to two conditions that I think I want to particularly identify uh, as important. The first is the question of speed. And the second is the, is the idea that not all developing countries uh, should be uh, treated alike uh, in analyzing or thinking through this question. The question of speed is something, and implementation, speed of implementation of these norms and compliance with international standards is something that the TRIPS agreement itself recognized in the inclusion of transitional provisions. But it's still a relatively short time from when we actually concluded TRIPS. It's only 10 years. And with respect to some of the provisions that have been implemented. It's only uh, 2006, and as Jerry said, there are some for least developed uh, countries that don't require to be implemented until uh, uh, 2013. So I think we need to give it a little bit of time uh, to countries to uh, ensure that they're able to comply with the international standards. And there's also a real danger of taking uh, a norm to the international level a little bit too quickly. And as an example of this, I think if you look at Article 31 of TRIPS, uh, and the compulsory licensing uh, mechanisms that existed. Uh, the assumption, though probably not 
all that explicit in the discussions, maybe Bruce can correct us, uh, from the early 90s, uh, was really that uh, compulsory licensing would work as a safety valve because there was some degree of manufacturing capacities in countries who could uh, uh, take advantage of and issue compulsory licenses. And I think the experience of the 1990s showed us that wasn't the case, uh, causing problems in the provision of drugs in Africa, such that we had to have uh, the Doha Declaration that Alex uh, referred to. But that took time. International obligations, when entrenched, are very, very difficult to change uh, uh, on the spot. Now, the old way in which the inter international intellectual property system took care of that danger of entrenchment uh, was really by ensuring there were plenty of spots for flexibility in the implementation of the international norms and also for some degree of latitude in the enforcement. So, for example, the United States could comply with the Berne Convention and take a relatively generous interpretation of its moral rights uh, obligations under Article 6 bis. Now, to be sure, TRIPS was intended in some ways to shore up the enforcement question and, in fact, take away, consciously take away, some of the latitude that was uh, available. Um, but I think on the flexibility question, TRIPS did take a different position. Uh, if one looks at Article 1.1, there clearly is a form of sort of international federalism that is recognized in the ability to implement what are general principles accord in accordance with uh, the legal culture uh, uh, that persists uh, in particular countries. And I don't think we should lose sight of that flexibility. So uh, there is within recognition, even within the current system, recognition of the fact that national autonomy, uh, national sovereignty is a way of efficiently implementing some more general norms. One last point, since Bruce has just stood up, uh, on uh, the, the importance of treating different things uh, differently, and that is a lot of the discussion uh, that one sees in this area, particularly in the controversial areas, uh, is really of patents. But I think it's important to recognize there are other forms of intellectual property. In particular, uh, the arguments for trademark protection and protection against counterfeiting, I think, are very strong as a short-term uh, uh, approach that developing countries have to take because the uh, social welfare and public health concerns that are implemented by, uh, by counterfeits are in fact, I think, such that uh, there is little reason not to comply very, very quickly with the general trademark obligations. So I think we need to understand and treat some of the intellectual property rights differently from others. So I think the short answer is yes, uh, intellectual property rights can help uh, developing countries, um, but the uh, ability of intellectual property rights to do that are heavily dependent upon the speed with which we require implementation. Uh, and the latitude and flexibility that we give developing countries to implement the obligations in ways that are tailored to their particular circumstances. Thank you. We have about <clears throat> 10 minutes now for discussion. It, it's, we got started a little bit late, and I think we're all going to be arrested by the Secret Service if we don't finish on time, so we have a particular problem here. Um, are there uh, questions or... Uh, from the floor, if you, if there are, I think there's a microphone to come up. Um, I, I will be happy to start out uh, the questioning um, uh, if we don't have any others. And I'd, I'd like to ask um, uh, Secretary Azar because HNHS uh, has been sort of in the middle of a lot of these questions about patents and access to pharmaceuticals, and this has been an issue in the World Health Organization. Uh, and the Bush administration has really put up the money to provide a market for the acquisition of legitimate patented products uh, through the $15 billion five-year program that the President has uh, uh, initiated. But do we see our trading partners, do we see other countries which are quick to criticize patent protection uh, also provide uh, uh, for a, a source of market-based revenue to purchase these drugs for poor countries? Well, I don't want to I don't want to go, go into each, each individual country's contribution. Certainly others have, uh, others have stepped up to the plate, nothing like what the United States has done when it comes to the President's Emergency Fund uh, commitment on HIV-AIDS drug and relief for target nations, and then also the U.S. commitment to the Global, funds, Global Fund for AIDS, tuberculos tuberculosis, and malaria. Really an unprecedented in world history commitment of one nation to the health of other countries. Um, what I see, though, in the world community so often is when you, when you look at, say, neglected diseases, uh, there are diseases in Africa that are only in Africa, only in countries that, uh, that never will be able to afford the kind of money that will develop 
the innovation and support a market for the development of products to cure those diseases, even though millions and millions of people suffer from them. And what you hear a lot of times is, well, we ought to get together at the World Health Organization, and we ought to create ourselves a pharmaceutical company, and we ought to, we ought to, we ought to innovate, uh, innovate and create those drugs and start manufacturing them and marketing them ourselves. Um, I, I, maybe it's just my inherent belief in the free market. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think that that is the way to go. Um, I think the global fund approach of creating a pool of money, if you think, it's a, if you think that it is a good international good, uh, to support the development of these products internationally. The way to do it is to not try to um, replicate what the free market itself can do if it has the right incentives to do it, including a market with intellectual property protections and a return on investment. You ought to create that return on investment. And that's what we've been doing for Global Fund and through PEPFAR. Uh, and so that's where I would significantly differ with a lot of my international colleagues when it comes to dealing with developing world diseases uh, and lack of current innovation there. Thank you. Um <clears throat> One of the questions uh, I think that is of concern to the Federal, Federal Society in general is that I, I would say the Federal Society is an organization, as I understand it, that sort of is dedicated to the rule of law. And I'd like to ask some of the panel members is really uh, the question of complying with intellectual property rights in the developing world a part of the larger problem of the rule of law in developing countries. And I would just uh, footnote that question. I don't know if my colleagues have read uh, Moises Nimes' book. He's a former director of the World Bank and uh, head of uh, and, and uh, editor of Foreign Policy magazine. Moises Nimes has read this book, written this book called Illicit, uh, which really uh, points out that uh, illicit, com- one of the consequences of globalization is that there's a huge globalized business and illicit commerce. And one of the biggest areas of this illicit business is uh, trade in counterfeited and pirated uh, goods where intellectual property rights are not uh, recognized. And I wonder if, uh, because it touches on some of the comments that some of the others made, if if, uh, my colleagues on the panel might have an observation about that. Want to start? Uh, just very quickly, I mean, it, I think it's, it's a very good observation, Bruce, it, 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 that in fact, if, if one looked back at some of the reasons for why uh, the, there were support in, in the 90s for a WTO agreement, it was not only the specific details in uh, the agreement, such as intellectual property and the TRIPS agreement, but in fact, the sort of knock-on effects that that might have uh, on the broader problem of the rule of law. In some ways, that's the flip of what you're suggesting, which is the broader problems about the rule of law and compliance and enforcement, in fact, uh, um, uh, make some of the intellectual property provisions a little bit more like the fantasy that that, that Bob is, is is talking about, uh, and so I think the answer is yes. And you see that you see that in the the direction of the more recent uh, efforts by the developed world uh, in the TRIPS council, for example, spoken on enforcement. It is things such as you know governments doing what they say they're meant to be doing, ensuring they have a judicial system in place. Um, I think the answer to that is to is to suggest that intellectual property, international intellectual property is in fact something that needs to be dealt with within a broader, uh, uh, a broader construct that has political linkages, that has the capacity to address more than simple norms of intellectual property, but in fact sort of more institutional and process concerns that affect the viability of international obligations being uh, enforced on a domestic level more generally. Do you have a comment on that? I think that the rule of law is a serious problem in that it it undermines all legitimate business in developing countries as well as intellectual property. I think it's – and counterfeiting is a scourge. I think it's a mistake to see it as just a developing country problem. You can buy every counterfeit product that you can get in Africa. You can also get in Genoa, Naples, and Rotterdam. And so we we have a serious problem, and I don't think that – trips alone. It's given some good tools which need to be uh, enforced. But I mentioned uh, fantasy and sex. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of this is, is very much an empirical question. I haven't read Moises' book, but Moises is a, a very sagacious observer, very close to the realities of the developing world. And I think probably what he's pointing at more than anything else is the weakness of judicial systems. By my calculation, about 80% of the countries of the world have judicial systems that are simply not adequate to the job that they face. And to dig a little deeper into that, 
countries with weak, with weak judicial systems, with judicial dysfunction, force people there to second-best second means of transacting, and they transact within their social networks. And this is low-cost, quite effective, but imposes severe constraints on economic development. And I would even go further and say that a good deal of the economic theory which the World Bank and other institutions operate from is improperly based. The classical economists lived in countries, England, Scotland, uh, Germany, France, where the judicial systems functioned fairly well. And so they didn't take into account what happens to economic activity behavior when the judicial system does not function well. So underneath any discussion of the realities of an intellectual property system is the very difficult problem that the judicial system doesn't serve to undergird uh, the intellectual property system. So we need to talk a lot about judicial system dysfunction and what can be done to overcome that. We have a question from the floor. If I understood the uh, uh, secretary correctly, uh, you implied that the, the enforcement of a, a regime of uh, price discrimination, given the marginal uh, cost of production uh, after, after discovery and, and, uh, and the, the first kind of infrastructural investments in, in drugs, for instance, that by enforcement of that kind of a regime, uh, we could potentially uh, affect the availability of these, uh, these uh, drugs or cures in, in areas of poverty, um, I wouldn't necessarily uh, disagree with that, except that last I looked, Canada was not an impoverished nation. Uh, you know, how do we separate the free riders from, from the need riders? And, uh, and that's, that's exactly my point, is that the developed world, uh, the Western European countries, you know, let me just give you an example. The Department of Commerce uh, two years ago did an important study looking at the various forms of price controls in the OECD nations and found that uh, those price controls each year withdraw, I think the number was uh, 15 to $28 billion of revenue each year out of the pharmaceutical system. Uh, that translates into 5 to $8 billion of research and, investment each, and, and investment each year that is pulled out of the system. And at an average price of $800 million to $1.3 billion per drug, that means three to four new molecular entities are deprived, or the people of the world are deprived of three to four new molecular entities each year. To put that in perspective, we at the Food and Drug Administration um, approve approximately 25 to 30 new molecular entities each year. That is a very serious impact on world health because of the price controls and behaviors in other developed countries. Uh, the developing world is not going to be the funding engine for future innovation in pharmaceuticals, but the developed world has to be, and uh, there are pricing systems. It, it, in my mind, it does no good to put in place intellectual property regimes without also looking at what the reimbursement system is like uh, when you have a, monop a monopsonistic single-payer system. You've got to respect that on the pricing side or the intellectual property really doesn't exist. You know, one of the uh, <clears throat> observations I would make about uh, patents and, and global health is that there are roughly about 300 essential medicines on the WHO, World Health Organization, list of essential medicines. And probably less than it used to be. The last I looked, there were about six of them were under patent. Maybe there are a few more now, and certainly with the coming into being of antiretrovirals for the treatment of AIDS, those are very important drugs. But the problem is that, uh, that of those 300 uh, medicines, of the 295 or so that aren't under patent, still at least two-thirds of the people in the developing world don't get those medicines. So clearly the patent system isn't, isn't the problem. And I have to say it's very troubling to me that sometimes the patent system is uh, accused of being the problem. I, I, we can maybe continue a little bit more if, uh, if our uh, – I don't want to – as I said, I don't want to get us all arrested. Shall we keep going for a few minutes, or I guess we can. Um, we're not told that we have to stop right now. Um, I'd like to uh, ask another question um, for uh, some of the panelists, and that is that com coming from my own experience, uh, 
the TRIPS agreement, which you've heard about, which is trade-related aspects of intellectual property rights, was part of the WTO treaty. That was an agreement that was uh, in the making for many, many years. It started, I think, under the Reagan administration and continued under uh, Bush one, and then uh, in the Clinton administration it was finally promulgated. Uh, and the TRIPS agreement uh, involved, a, 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 in my view, a quid pro quo, and that is that you can't, you can't look at TRIPS, that is, uh, intellectual property rights, in isolation. It's very hard to go to a department store in the United States now and buy an item of clothing or some other product that's not made in another country. And so part of the design of the WTO treaty was very much that we would open up our markets to uh, inexpensive uh, imported manufactured products, and then in turn we'd get paid for what we do in the United States, which is, you know, our information industries, our high-tech industries, our technology industries, including the pharmaceutical industry. Now, we're running about a $600 billion trade deficit. Moises Naim, uh, who I mentioned before, has... Uh, put a number of about $600 billion on the total trade in counterfeited and pirated products in the world, assuming that the U.S. Uh, uh, piece of that $600 billion is a good significant share of it, we could drastically cut our trade deficit if we simply had compliance with the rule of law. And I wonder if uh, some of the uh, – the, I, I know, you know, Professor Reichman has talked about how the, uh, uh, the uh, you know, Countries are different levels of development. He talked about how in the 19th century the United States pirated, but we didn't have a global economy with a trade agreement like this in the 19th century. And so uh, perhaps some of the uh, 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 panelists would uh, like to um, comment on that observation. I certainly think you're right, Bruce. Uh, It seems to me that it would be very much in the U.S., uh, self-interest to work hard with a lot of countries on improving what we call rule of law. And indeed, here in Washington, there are many organizations, agencies, groups uh, that are focusing on rule of law concerns. Uh, my difficulty, to the extent I understand what they're about, is that they haven't spent enough time in those countries to really understand uh, the alternative ways in which people in those countries get around judicial risk. Uh, by and large, these, these workaround approaches, the social network transacting, seem to work fairly well. And so, in, in my mind, the uh, top, of, top priority on the agenda of things to be done is to measure the costs of these substitutes for judicial system performance. Uh, to help the elites in an awful lot of developing countries understand better how they're losing out by not having a better functioning judicial system. Um, that's, that's sort of the foundation that's needed for then moving uh, on to the question of counterfeiting and, and intellectual property. Yes. Um, Since I've referred to you specifically, I'll well, give you the floor. Uh, I don't think I want to get into all sides of it, but um, you certainly are right about the trade-offs. We, we, we've lost uh, 200,000 uh, textile jobs in uh, North Carolina alone. This agreement, so uh, it hasn't been a painless agreement for both sides, and uh, you, you, you make a point. Uh, I'm curious to hear so much talk about price discrimination, particularly in medicines. Uh, everybody, uh, we, we have some very good evidence, uh, uh, a very good article uh, uh, by, uh, I'm blanking out on her name now, at uh, Wharton, who is very close to the pharmaceutical companies and gives some very good reasons why they don't uh, price discriminate. So uh, uh, if you have some evidence that they are price discriminating, it would be very uh, – I know the United Nations would be very happy to hear about it. We, we, we have not found much evidence. And again, uh, I think that one of the best antidotes to uh, the problems that you're making is a better price structure. Instead of uh, just sitting over here and, and shipping our stuff uh, at prices that uh, we're used to, if we thought more about – uh, setting up uh, 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 manufacturing and distribution facilities in these countries and selling them at prices that more people could afford, we reduce the incentive for uh, counterfeiting 
and we, uh, uh, we, we reduce uh, the need for a tough rule of law implementation, which, as you point out, is very difficult for these countries to do, by pricing it at levels that more people can afford. And I, I just wish that more of our businesses would, would, would think about uh, pricing and business strategies better related to, to actual conditions in developing countries. Well, the example that's happening with Brazil. Brazil's, act, Brazil's actually using... Uh, um, using the backdrop, backdrop of Doha to negotiate prices that are that are below uh, below normal national, international competitive market prices. Oh, okay, those are involuntary. I, I was well, no, well, they. It's well, that's <laughs> what I, I said about, about Doha. Yeah, I know yeah. about those. Well, <laughs> that's well, what it is. Is nobody's, as far as I know, nobody nobody has actually ever since we've had the Doha court has has actually used a compulsory license. The fact that it hangs out there is what allows a country like Brazil to negotiate. Um, negotiate an agreement on pricing, uh, and, and but then what, from our perspective, is vitally important are the controls on um, on parallel trade um, of that of those products well, back into right. back into other countries. Right. Absolutely, absolutely, uh, I could not agree more. And the agreements call for stringent pr- uh, prohibitions of re-exports, and uh, you need to step down on them. They should not be re-exported. Yeah, I just went very quick. I mean, I think uh, the the bargain metaphor, a contract metaphor, can be taken a little bit too far. I'm not too sure it really uh, is all that helpful. Uh, A lot of developing countries would argue that uh, one of the things they were bargaining for was uh, the end of uh, uh, unilateral and bilateral pressure, which has been part of what's happened since. So I'm not too sure you get all that far by using that metaphor, even though I think you're right uh, about your descriptive analysis of what happened. And instead, I think it's better to look at what are the social conditions that now apply, the economic conditions that now apply, and try and work out how most efficiently to implement the norms now according to those conditions. Thank you very much. I think that will be the last word. We'll finish on time. And I imagine, for some reason, we have a huge audience here for intellectual property. It's really, really uh, exciting for all of us here in uh, patents, trademarks, and copyrights. But I have a feeling there's another reason. But (laughs) thanks. Thanks.